As we begin our study today, in Genesis chapter 17, as uh, Pastor Mark read, Mike read just a few moments ago, let me invite you to consider one question as we begin our study. Have you settled for less than God's best? Have you settled for less than God's best? I think sometimes we have a tendency to settle for less than what God intends for us to enjoy in Christ. And if we're not careful, we'll settle for less. For whatever reason, whatever justification, whatever understanding we may have, we somehow see what God has for us as unreachable or unattainable. And so because of that, we then settle for less than what God has, which is his best for your life. I know it sounds like a Joel Olstein commercial today. But it's very biblical in Genesis chapter 17, so we're going to take a look at that. But before we do, uh, let me, because it's Children's Day, let me read to you this interesting little story. I know I've used this a couple of years past, and some of you never forget anything that I read, and some of you forget what I say from Sunday to Sunday. So here we go. Uh, I, I'm convinced that I could change the story sometimes and, uh, and maybe switch some of the points, and some of you six months from now won't remember what we talked about today. Because I know my, my, my discipleship university class having a hard time with that. So there's another plug. How about that, Mike? At 5.30 in the Family Life Center. I'm no, just kidding. So when Diane found out that she was pregnant, she lit up the phone and telling everyone about the good news. One day she took her four-year-old son, Sam, to Sunday school, and as soon as mother was out of sight, Sam informed the class that his mother was pregnant and that they were going to have a baby in the family. And the teacher then asked, as she addressed Sam, obviously because he was very loud and everyone here heard it, uh, she wanted to know if it was going to be a boy or a girl. He said, yes, ma'am, we're going to have a baby, but uh, we're going to have a girl. Teacher then asked, then little Sam said, well, if you're going to have a girl, then what are you going to call her? He said, well, we're going to call her Molly. I heard mom talking on the phone the other day, and she was telling somebody that she hoped she had a little girl because she already had a little boy like me, and, and that because of that, that she hoped that she had a little girl, and if she had a little girl, she's decided that she wants to call my little sister Molly. But what if you have a brother instead of a sister? What will she call him? She asked. Well, I heard them talking the other day when they didn't know I was listening, and they said that if they have another little boy just like me, they're going to call him quits. <laughs> quits. What parent hasn't felt like that from time to time? Be honest. Quits. I'm convinced that Abram and Sarai have quit expecting God to do more than when they currently have. Doesn't mean they lack faith. Doesn't mean that they lacked hope. Doesn't mean that they lacked expectancy. But they got used to the new normal. It's a new normal. They have had a son <coughs> by their own doing. The New Testament calls him an act of the flesh named Ishmael. And Ishmael was a product of Abram with Hagar. And now we have a period of time that has lapsed since we were last week in which Ishmael is now 13 years old and I'm convinced that Abram and Sarai have settled for less than God's best. 
We're not told what they thought. We're not told how they acted. We're not really told anything about what transpires in these next 13 years. Don't you have questions sometimes that wish you had the answers to? Well, what happened during these 13 years? But we, we really don't know. The scripture is silent. And God has been silent now for 13 years. And Abram and Sarai have settled into a new normal. They are way up in their elderly, senior adult years. And they have settled for less than God's best. But God hasn't quit on them. God has not quit on them. And he will not quit on you. You may settle for less than God's best, but God will not quit on you. For God who promised is faithful not only to Abram and Sarai, but he is also faithful toward you in that he will keep his promises. And even though it's been quite some time since Abram and God have had a one-on-one, a heart-to-heart, a mano-a-mano, so to speak, he is about to approach Abram with some insight, some new information that will require a change, an alteration on his part to prepare for what God is about to do. I'm convinced in Genesis 17, God is preparing Abram for what he is about to do. I don't know about you, but when you're you know, 90, because Sarah's 90, and Abram is, is, is 100 by the time this child is born, it's going to take some preparation to become a parent again. And God wants to prepare them so that when the child finally arrives, they are ready to receive the supernatural activity of God. And there are some elements in this preparation that I believe God wants us to learn from this morning because I'm convinced that God doesn't want you to settle for less than his best and he wants you to then move with him into the supernatural activity that he wants to bring into your life to change you to transform you to move you from where you are in this norm that is not God's design or his intention for your life to move you to where he wants you to be so that you can enjoy the best of what God has for you. Do not settle for less than God's best, for the supernatural activity of God can invade your life if you're responsive to him, and the end result will be much better than what you currently know and enjoy today. So getting ready for the supernatural activity of God, I believe, is a theme of this passage. And I want us to look at, very quickly, seven things that help us get ready as we learn from Abram as to how God wanted to prepare Abram to get ready for the supernatural activity of God. And here I hope that you will learn some insights that we can apply from Abram's life, because Scripture not only speaks then, but it speaks to us today. There are some insights, some principles here, some precepts that will help us implement these things into our lives. While it does speak to Abram and his situation, it can speak to us as well today to help us get ready for, I believe, the supernatural activity of what God wants to do in your life, in our lives together, to move us from where we are to where God wants us to be. So let's get ready for that. How do I get ready for the supernatural activity of God? Number one, I must remain patient. I must remain patient. That is critical. Remain patient. I think one of the things that gets us in trouble the most is that we, we just flat out get tired of waiting on God. We already know what happened to Abram and Sarah when they got tired of waiting on God. They took matters into their own hands. We go back to 1616, which is the verse that we ended with last week, where we see Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. 
If you remember in chapter 16, they are been, they've been waiting for the supernatural activity of God to, to invade their lives and to bring them the child. They've been trying, they've been seeking this child for quite some time now, and, and all of their effort has failed, and they've gotten tired of waiting on God. And, and we learn that, that Sarah comes to uh, Abram and says, I know how we can help God along in fulfilling the promise. You can have a child through Hagar, and you can marry her. Even though it was a complete defiance of the standard and the precept of God, for some reason, Abram complies and they have a child and his name is Ishmael. And now Ishmael is born. They were not patient. And now it's 13 years later. 13 years later. Ishmael is 13 years old. We see now in 17.1 where when Abram was 90 Nine years old. Anybody in here 99? Anybody close to 99? Brother Dorian, how old are you? Don't let them be ashamed about. How old are you, Brother Dorian? 93. Anybody older than 93? Let's give him a round of applause. And he's looking good for 93. Miss Ruby, how old are you? 97. Wow. 90. Why didn't you speak up, Miss Ruby? You're not embarrassed to be 97, are you? I know you're not. And look how beautiful she is. Whenever I don't get a hug from her every Sunday, I miss it. Can you imagine having God invade your life at 99 years old? With the news, <laughs> you're about to have a child. Can you imagine? Impossible, you say. Not according to this. It's not according to this. Because he's a God of impossibilities. He makes possible the impossibilities. He makes the natural supernatural. And there are no impossibilities with God. So don't you leave today while you're having lunch and say, it's impossible, we could never, that could never happen to us. If God promised, if God said, if it, God wills it, it can and it will happen. And when Abram was 99 years old, 13 years since Ishmael was born, since they took matters into their own hands, since according to the New Testament, they had a child of the flesh, not of the spirit, but of the flesh. Thirteen years they have been raising Ishmael as if he were their only hope. Thirteen years. You've got to remain patient to get ready for what God wants to do because when when God does it, he does it. God has a time frame. God has a timetable. God has things that he's doing in the process to get you exactly where you are to where you need to be so that he can then invade your life and then make the supernatural happen. Don't give up on God. Remain patient. I know some of you have been waiting on God for quite some time. Continue to wait on God until the supernatural activity of God invades your life and he speaks in your life and he says, go. It's like being at that red light that just doesn't turn green quick enough. 
Eventually it will turn green and it won't turn green until God says that it will turn green and he will give you the green light and he will give you the go ahead. So until then, remain patient. If you stop remaining patient, you won't be ready for what God has in store for you. Remain patient. Number two, we need to recognize authority. Notice the text that when Abram was 99 years old, it says the Lord appeared to Abram. The Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, God, the Lord himself appeared to Abram. The word appeared means that he was visible. He was able to see Jehovah. He was visibly able to see God. He saw God. The presence of God was there. He saw him. And as God saw him, you go down to verse 3 now. Then Abram, having seen God, how does he react? He falls on his face. Now, the falling on his face is a spontaneous, an immediate, an intentional activity of Abram, where as soon as he hears and sees God, he immediately, instantly falls on his face. That means he put his face in the dirt. That doesn't mean that he he went, wait a minute, let me find a a little piece of grass here or or a clean spot or, or just the right spot where there are no rocks. He just fell on his face. Didn't care what was there because he was in the presence of Jehovah, in the presence of Yahweh. Why did he do that? Because he recognized the authority of the one whom was standing before him. And when we stop recognizing the authority of Jehovah, the the authority of God over our lives as the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone sits on the throne, God himself dictating and ruling the activities and the affairs of our life, when we don't recognize his authority and we take matters in our own hands, we stop waiting on God and we settle for less than what God has for us. I mean, Abram and Sarah have already learned that lesson when they took matters in their own hands and they had Ishmael by Hagar. And here Abram is recognized and he's standing in the very presence of God. And, and we must understand that God's presence is with us. And in that presence and with that presence, he is sitting on his throne, dictating and ruling the activities and the affairs of our lives. And we must submit. We must bow. We must recognize. We must humble ourselves before the holy of holies and the king of kings and recognizing that he and he alone determines when he fulfills his promises how he fulfills those promises and we are simply then to submit to him as the sovereign authority the sovereign king the sovereign ruler over our lives god we submit to you we yield to you the controls of our lives and you are the lord And we fall on our face in humble recognition of who he is and bow in submission to his rulership and his authority of our lives. For unless we do that, we cannot be ready for what God wants to bring into our lives. If you sit behind the driver's seat and you take the steering wheel and you dictate and determine the direction of your life, you'll never be ready for what God has in store for you. You've got to let him sit in the driver's seat. You've got to let him take the steering wheel. You've got to let him call the shots. You've got to let him dictate the directions. You've got to let him make your choices. You've got to let him lead you and guide you. Set the perimeters for your life, the do's and the don'ts. 
I know it's constricting, dadgummit. I mean, then the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans said that the law constricts me and the law itself propels me into greater sin. And it seems like when, when somebody says, don't step on the grass, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? You want to step on the grass. Why? That's why God made it. Step on the grass. Well, you know, God didn't plant that grass there. Somebody put the sod there. <laughs> and they don't want you to step on their grass. But if God's the authority, then we submit to his rulership and his, his leadership. Because unless you do, you'll never be ready to go beyond where you are today. And that's probably one of the, one of the number two things that hold us back the most from experiencing what God wants to do and where God wants to take us is the fact that we're rebellious and we're resistant, we're defiant, we're carnal, we're fleshly, and we're living in the flesh. And he said we need to recognize his authority. Somebody get that phone, would you? Is it God? It's not God? That's all right. Number three. Yes, Lord. How do we get ready? Remain patient, recognize authority. Number three, rely completely on God. Rely completely on God. Notice the third part of verse one. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. I am God Almighty. One word in the original language. I am God Almighty. In other words, I am self-sufficient. I, in and of myself, need no one. God doesn't need anyone to accomplish anything. He is completely and totally self-reliant and self-sufficient. Not only that, not only am I self-reliant, but I am omnipotent. What does that mean? That means I have all power to do anything that I choose and I desire and I want to do. I am an all-powerful God. There are no limitations to what I can do. And if I say that something's going to happen and you say, well, what about this and what about that and what about this? That's impossible. And God says, no, 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 no. I'm God Almighty. And if I say it can happen, it will happen. We need to stop putting God in a box. Stop putting God in a box. Let him out. Well, let me, let me say, you can't put him in a box. <laughs> Only a box in your brain. And God laughs at that. He says, I am God Almighty to Abraham. He is laying the foundation for the impossibility that he's about to ask. God, this is impossible. And God said, no, I am God Almighty. He's laying the foundation for Abraham to understand right up front Right before he reveals the plan, right, right before he, he says, this is what I'm going to do, he says, Abram, I want you to understand, I am God Almighty. There's nothing, there's no impossibility that I can't do. So what is it that's in your life that God can't do? Nothing. And the limitation that you have in moving with God is putting limits on the ability, the might, the power, the self-sufficiency, and the omnipotent authority of God. And if we would simply believe God for who he is, we would see the impossible possible. And we'd put our faith in him. For it says in verse 3, if you'll notice, and God said to Abram, he's about to tell him, behold, that means pay attention. The Charles, I was it to Charles Stanley or somebody said, now listen. They say that all the time. Now listen, now listen. Isn't that who that is? Now listen. 
That's what he's saying here. Now listen to me. Listen to me. That's part of the problem is sometimes we're not listening to God. And he says, behold. And God said, behold, my, whose covenant is it? My covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. You know, no, notice you shall be. This is a done deal. It is a, an accomplished fact. You shall be. Why? Because God dictates it, and God facilitates it, and God decrees it. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. You're going to be the father of a multitude. No longer shall your name be called Abram. What does Abram mean? It means high father. What his name means? High father. One, one uh, commentator that I read this week said it means father of many. Father of many. And he raised an interesting thing this week and made me think about it. I kind of laughed about it. Every time he introduced himself for a hundred, well, until, uh, until Ishmael was born, he had no children. No children. And names meant something back then. Did you know that? Your name told others what kind of person you were. And Abram, when he said, I'm, a, I, I'm the high father, I'm the father of many. And they said, well, how many children do you have? Well, I don't have any. <laughs> this guy's nuts. I mean, he's, how old was Ishmael when, when uh, Ishmael was born? Come on. How old was he? 86. For 86 years, well, not 86, until they got married. All of this time, I'm Abram, father of many. Well, how many have? I don't have any children. I mean, <laughs> it's got nuts, man. Okay, so, are you following me? He's crazy. The old man's crazy. Now, now notice, no longer, notice, I mean stop, no longer, from now on, you will no longer shall your name be Abram, father of many, but your name shall be Abraham. Abraham, which means father of multitudes. Now, can you imagine after this conversation with God, one of the commentators, kind of, this is what made me laugh, you go back to your family and you go back to your friends and say, you know what, God's just changed my name. I'm no longer father of many. I'm father of multitudes. Well, how many children do you have? I don't have any. Can you imagine? At 99, they went back to their, 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 their huts. And I said, old man Abraham has lost his mind. The old senile fella had just lost it. He said he's had a conversation with God, and God has told him, you're going to be the father of multitudes. His name before that was father of many, and we heard about the promise and the covenant that God made, but he hadn't had any yet. Now at 99, he thinks he's going to be the father of multitudes. (laughs) He's just crazy. Can you imagine the conversations that went on around the dinner table that night after they heard that God had changed his name? But you're going to be called now from now on Abraham. But you shall be Abraham. Notice what God says, for I have made, I have made. There's the done deal, you the father of a multitude of nations. I have already done it. It is a done deal. It is signed, sealed, and delivered. Abraham. Think about Abram, Abraham. Ham. Ha. Ha. Abraham. God added the ha. What is ha? Ha. 
is the spirit of God. It is the breath of God. When God made Adam, what did he do? He breathed into Adam and he came to life. Adam was dead. He had made this body. It was lifeless until God breathed life into it. It could not come to life by itself. It needed God to breathe life into him. And now God is saying, Abraham, you do not have the power nor the ability to make this happen, but I am going to, I'm going to pneuma, I am going to breathe my spirit into you and give you the power and the ability to make it happen. Not your, not in the flesh, but in the spirit, I'm going to give you the strength. So as I think about how that relates to us today, when we come to faith in Christ and he breathes life into our dead bodies, what does he promise us? The gift of the Holy Spirit. And now the gift of the Holy Spirit enables us and empowers us then to live beyond the natural and to live in the realm of the supernatural, not because we are doing it in the flesh, in and of ourselves, independently and apart from God, but we are doing it by his power because he is living through us. God Almighty is living in us through the Spirit, and now we're able to see the incredible work of the Spirit of God flow through us and in us, not of anything that we have done, but solely because of what he has done in and through us. And we Southern Baptists and we Baptists and we evangelicals have gotten away from the Holy Spirit so much because we're afraid of the Pentecostal and the charismatic movement that we have somehow taken the plug out of the power source. And, and we're like the fan that's trying, we're, we're trying to make the fan go when all you got to do is plug it into the power source and it's available. There's a resource there that can move you from where you are to where you need to be. And it's not in your own strength. It's in his strength. And the reason why you're not moving is because you're trying it in your own power, in your own strength, in the flesh, in your human ability, not in the supernatural, not in the natural, but in the supernatural power of God manifesting itself in and through you, giving you the resource that you need as you rely upon him to move you to where he wants you to be. Maybe the reason why you're not moving is because you're doing it in the flesh. You're mustering up within yourselves what is necessary to make it happen, and you're failing. You're failing. Because we're, when we're filled and we're moving and when we're keeping in step with the Spirit, it's God doing it, not us. I mean, think of the breath that you're breathing right now. The air that's in here, you're breathing in air. Who's provided the oxygen? God. How are you able to stay alive? Well, I'm breathing with my lungs, right? Right. So how are you able to stay alive? I'm breathing in the oxygen, the grace that God has provided. But God gives us the strength. It is God who gives us the strength. It is God who gives us the lungs. It is God that empowers our lungs because we can't empower anything without him. He is empowering us to take in the oxygen that we need in order to survive, in order to live, in order to exist. It's all God. And when we learn to rely completely on God and take ourselves out of the equation, and let his pneuma, his 
that he's breathed on us, the moment we place our faith and trust in Jesus, then the supernatural becomes possible. Number four, I must not only remain patient and recognize authority, rely completely, but I must reveal authenticity. Reveal authenticity. There's a responsibility that I have, though, because God is about to say, hey, I have a responsibility. It's not all on God because, you, you know, you could easily say, well, you know, God, if, if, if I'm not moving, it's your fault because you're not doing it through me. And it seems how God kind of gets blamed for a lot of things these days, doesn't he? And notice what happens in verse in the, in the 1D. He says to Abram, walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me. That walk before me means that I am walking in the presence, in the presence of God. I'm walking in the presence of God. I am keeping in step with God's leadership. I am keeping in step with God's spirit. I am being obedient to him. I'm being obedient. Let's take the analogy of the breath in the air. I could stop breathing. I could say, no, I'm not going to take in any more breath, any more oxygen, and I could literally stop breathing. While God gives me the strength to breathe, he gives me a responsibility to breathe. God is saying you have a responsibility to be obedient. I will, but you must. Notice what he says in verse 9. And God said to Abram, as for you, you shall keep my covenant and not only you, but you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. Not only should you, but also your offspring. Verse 10, this is my covenant, which you shall keep. You shall keep. I will and you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. It's not in the flesh. It's in the spirit. I've already said that. But there's a responsibility here on his part to be obedient because Grace carries a responsibility, doesn't it? And so he says, walk before me, but he also says, and be blameless. And the blameless aspect is about purity. Walk in holiness, walk in humility, walk in righteousness. I will and you will. For God supplies the grace in Abram's life to be able to do what is necessary, but grace doesn't come cheap, and he requires Abram then to join God in what God is doing, and they walk side by side, God doing it in him, but his responsibility is to keep in step with the presence and the Spirit of God. And so they both have responsibilities. Now, it's interesting, we're going to talk about a covenant, and a covenant, one is greater than the other, and God definitely is greater than Abram, and God is able to keep what he promised, and Abram obviously is not, so God supplies the grace that enables Abram to be able to rise to the occasion and to keep the covenant. So it's all basically him tapping into that reservoir, enabling that to happen. And when he does, he reveals authenticity. It's striking to me how many people today want to claim to be Christians and yet live their lives any way they choose. And and sometimes those lives are in complete defiance and rebellion to the standard of righteousness of what it means to be a Christ follower. Have you noticed that? And they they claim either grace or they claim tolerance. When I've been born of the Spirit and he's breathed new life into me, his pneuma, he's breathed life into me, what is the evidence of that faith in Christ? What is the evidence? What does James say? 
there's got to be a product of that because regeneration produces justification that results in sanctification. What does that mean? That means when you've been born again and God's breathed new life into you, you're going to keep in step with the Spirit, you're going to follow the presence of God, and you're going to live in obedience to Him. And if you're not, that's probably a pretty good indication that you've never been born again. Now, it doesn't mean that, that you and I are to be perfect. That's why God gives us grace. But a continual rebellion and a resistance and a defiance and a lifestyle of living outside of the will and the purpose and the plan of God is, in my opinion, a pretty good indication, according to Scripture, that that person more than likely has never been born again. And part of the negligence that we have as Baptists, because we believe once saved, always secure, that we have a tendency to tell someone when they say a little prayer of faith and they walk an aisle and we baptize them in the baptistry, they're signed, sealed, and delivered and forever saved. So no matter how they live from that point on, they're saved. I wonder about that sometimes. Don't you? Because I'm wondering if we're giving assurance of salvation to some who've never truly been saved because there's no fruit of the product of their salvation, which is holiness and humility and obedience and a walk in righteousness. Not perfection. And so here we have then this authenticity that we must reveal. If there, there's an aspect of walking before God and walking blamelessly if we're going to move where God wants us to move. You can't live in sin and go with God. You can't persist and rebel and defy God and go to God's best. You've got to, you've got to walk before God and you've got to, to live righteously and, and, and walk humbly. And as you, you begin to make progress in those things, you can slowly begin to walk with God. Number five, we need to receive clarity because you see Abram needed to receive clarity. And now it's Abraham, not Abram anymore. And God wants to clarify what Abram is going to do, what's going to happen. And, and here we see this wonderful principle where God reveals step by step what he desires from Abraham. And he does that in your life and my life. If I'm going to move from where I am to where God wants me to be, he's going to show me one step at a time. He's going to show me where to step and how he's going to do that. And this is what he does to Abram. Notice in verse 2, that I may make my covenant between you and me. This is how I'm going to fulfill the covenant. Now down to verse 15, he tells how he's going to do that. In verse 15 he said, And God said to Abram, As for Sarah, your wife, Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai or Sarai, but now Sarah shall be her name. Not only that, but I will bless her. And moreover, on top of that, there's more. I will give you a son by her, and I will bless her. Two times she's received a blessing, and she shall become nations, kings of peoples, notice the plural, shall come from her. Notice he says, I'm going to rename, I'm going to rename Sarai to Sarah. Why that? Sarah, the breath. He gave Sarah the same pneumati, the same pneumos, the same breath, the same spirit, the same power as he gave Abram. There's a parallel blessing here between Abram and Sarah. He gave them both equal the same blessing. Not only that, I'm going to elevate her now by renaming her, and the word Sarah means princess. Because if you remember back when we talked about Hagar and how she looked down upon her with contempt, 
And now for 13 years, imagine Ishmael sitting at the breakfast table, the lunch table, and the dinner table, and, and, and around all those things, and he is a constant reminder of the contempt that she had because that Hagar's child, that's not hers, and she's feeling lowly and demoted and not good about herself. And now God is elevating her. He's picking her up. And he's calling her princess, who is going to deliver an heir to the kingdom of God. He's elevating her. Have you ever felt down and discouraged and humiliated and and everybody looks upon you with contempt? Look at yourself through the eyes of the one who made you, and he will elevate you. And she's about to become the most treasured, honored thing that any woman could ever be, and that is a mother. And notice the promise is that she will bear a child. She's 89 years old, and she's going to bear a child. How? (sighs) Through the Spirit of God working in her life to bring about that child. And notice there's a double portion of the blessing, and as a result of the birth that she's going to give in this little baby, she is going to be the mother of generations and kingdoms to come. He gives Abram clarity now how this is going to happen. And when, when Abram walks away from this, he, he is clear. There's, there's no mistake. God's going to do it in my marriage between me and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah are going to have a child, her 90 and him 100. That's how God's going to do it. You know, it's, it's very important that before you move from where you are to where God wants you to be, that you have clarity as to how God's going to make that happen. Because remember, Sarah and Abraham made that mistake in the previous chapter, and they took matters into their own hands and acted in the flesh, and then the result was Ishmael, who became a victim of all of that. It wasn't his fault. And now he's saying, here's clearly how I'm going to do that. So when you move from where you are to where you're going to be, where God wants you to be, make sure you get clear instructions from him as to how that is going to become possible. Number six, reflect expectancy. Here's where it gets a little tricky because we see in the text that I may make my covenant between you and me. And it talks about covenant. And the word covenant here is used 13 times in this, in this context, in this, this chapter, 13 times the word covenant. And I've already alluded to this, but very quickly, when, when there was a covenant between two people, there were mostly between people that were equals, and so one had a responsibility and one had a responsibility, and each fulfilled that responsibility, and they made a covenant to fulfill that responsibility. But when God made a covenant with Abraham, his covenant was not made among equals because Abraham is not equal to God, because there's no one equal to God. He is the God Almighty, and because he is the God Almighty, he is elevated to a place, and when God makes a covenant with Abraham, Abraham's way down here, and God's way up here, and so there's a difference, and God then, sell, then, then God supplies the power that is necessary to bring Abraham up here to this level, and, and so as a result of that, then it, it is that, that that makes the covenant then possible. And how does Abram respond to the covenant of God? Notice what happens. Verse 17. And Abram fell on his face and he laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? 
Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Notice his reaction. He falls on his face. This is the second time now. He falls on his face in awe and humility of God and the one who is there. He is praising him. He is, he is humbled. He is recognizing God. He is, I believe, rejoicing. He is rejoicing here. He is laughing out of joy. Abram now Abraham has now finally been broken of the flesh and of himself, and in the power of the Spirit, he begins to laugh with joy. <laughs> and he can't stop. I mean, he's just laughing his head off because God is going to bless him with a child through Sarah. And he, he is beside himself. And if he were not flat on his face on the ground, he'd be doing the happy dance. And I'm sure his feet were more than likely not still at this point. And he was rejoicing. He wasn't happy because it was about a happenstance. It was a joy that comes from the Spirit of God dwelling in his heart that raised up within him, that gave him a, la a, a, a laughter that was a laughter of joy. Why do you say that? Because they named him Isaac. Why did they name him Isaac? It means laughter. I don't think they would have named Isaac laughter if this laughter were sinful, if it was a laughter of doubt. I think it's a laughter of joy because there's no rebuke here in this scripture. I mean, he's in the presence of God, and if he laughed and he was doubtful, God said, stop doing that, and you're, you're doubting. He didn't do that. And this shall here is a reflection on what God is going to do. God is going to give me a child. Finally, I have been waiting now for 99 years, and God now has finally come to my aid. He is finally going to fulfill his promise, and I am, I am laughing with joy. Man, it's coming. And I can imagine after this, when he went back to his family, he was, you know, he wasn't doing the Baptist thing. He was doing the Pentecostal thing. And Brother Mark, when did we start dancing in church? And that song freaks me out when we in a Baptist church and you talk about dancing. When's the last time you had an expectancy in your heart about what God wanted to do in your life and through your life? Seriously. When's the last time you had an expectancy in your heart? that God, God was going to do something supernatural. We come in here Sunday after Sunday. Do we come in here with an expectancy of God's supernatural activity or we just come in here out of a habitual routine in which, ah, just another Sunday, just another Sunday. Just some more songs to sing, just another sermon to hear and walk out living lives without any expectation of the supernatural activity of God. And we kind of blame the fact that we're Baptist. We don't believe that kind of stuff. I, I beg to differ with you. We should live with an expectancy that the supernatural activity of God transcends the natural and the supernatural is still in effect today. Where is our expectancy? Satan loves to crush our hopes and our dreams and our visions and our excitement and our joy. But we shouldn't let him do that. There should be an expectancy of the supernatural transcending the natural and that God is 
on his throne and he is actively working. And because of that, I believe and I expect God's doing something. God is at work. And the problem is that most of us flat out walk around with our eyes closed and we're not seeing God at work. And so therefore, there's no recognition of that. And we just don't see the supernatural and it's all around us all the time. Lastly, we need to refocus entirely our perception, our understanding. We need to change our focus. We need to change our attention. We need to put it on what God is doing rather than on what we have done. And that's, that, that's critical here because I'm convinced that, that Abraham and Sarah, now after 13 years of living with Ishmael at their dinner table, watching him grow up and play whatever sport they played and, and all that stuff that has to do with raising a child, now they have a child in puberty in their home and how wonderful that is. <clears throat> Not. Anyway, uh, that's all right. If you have a 13-year-old right now in your house, just wait. In about seven or eight years, you'll get smarter. It happens. When they finally get 20 or 21, it's amazing how quick the parents get a whole lot smarter. Seriously, 13 and 20, 21, you can hang it up. You know nothing. Some of you say, well, my kid's 40 and I still don't know anything. Well, maybe they need to get out of puberty. But anyway, notice it says in the last part of verse 2, and may multiply you greatly. May multiply you greatly. Who was God going to multiply? The seed of Abraham and Sarah. The seed that God would bring that was supernatural, of the spirit, not of the flesh. And like I said earlier, I think Abraham and Sarah had settled to a point in which they were, it's a new normal. Ishmael was around, and, and they looked at him probably maybe the heir of what they had built up and what God had blessed them with. And notice verse 18, and Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. What's his concern? His concern is for his 13-year-old son, Ishmael. He had just gotten this promise from God about Isaac means laughter, and he was rejoicing, and then he went, oh, Ishmael. <laughs> I love Ishmael. I've been with him for 13 years. We've been playing ball together, and we've been working on you know, this new funny math, and we've been spending a lot of time together, and, and we've been out building stuff and herding sheep and, and all this kind of stuff. And, 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 and now you're saying, but, but, but what about Ishmael? God, what, what about Ishmael? The child of the flesh, the child that we created that was in disobedience to you. As I already mentioned, Ishmael is a victim. He's not the cause. And God said, no. Don't you love it when God says no? I don't know about you, but I don't. So I got a concern over here, God, and this is my concern. He said, not my concern. That's not what your focus is supposed to be. Notice he says, no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him, not with Ishmael, with Isaac, as an everlasting covenant a covenant that has no ending for his offspring after him and we are here today in Christ a part of that offspring but my concern is not your concern and my covenant is with Isaac because it's through Isaac that the Messiah is going to be born 
And notice now the commitment that God gives him through Ishmael. As for Ishmael, God says, I have heard you. I have heard you. Don't overlook that. God does hear his concern. Behold, listen, listen, Abraham. Listen, Abraham, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. His commitment is to bless Ishmael, but not to make a covenant with Ishmael. There's a difference. It's called common grace. And notice the concentration that he then, Abraham, I want to put your focus away from Ishmael. Now, notice what happens in verse 20. This is huge, verse 24. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac. I will establish my covenant with Isaac. He's repeated that now twice. Whom Sarah will shall bear to you at this time next year. I want you to focus not on Ishmael, but upon Isaac. Because it is through him that my covenant is to be fulfilled. It is through him. Shift your focus away from Ishmael and that of the flesh and over here to the things of the spirit. Which is the reason why circumcision is about the flesh. It's a cutting away of the flesh, dying to self and dying to the flesh and living in the spirit. Verse 22, and when he had finished talking with him, Abraham, God went up from Abraham. He was through. It was done. It was over. It was finished. What are you focused on today? Are you focused on things of the flesh? Are you focused on things that are carnal? Are you thinking focused on things that are worldly? Are you focused on the things that God doesn't want you to be focused on? You can't move from where you are to where God wants you to be unless your sight, your vision, your focus is on the things of God and on God himself. You can't live in two worlds. You can't do it. And the pull of this world is to pull us into a world of the flesh, to waste our lives on the things that are carnal, to waste our lives on the things that are worldly, and to spend our resources, our time, and our talent, and our energy on these things that are here today and gone tomorrow. And God is saying, I want you to focus on my spirit, on the things that are eternal, not on the things that are temporary. So where is your focus today as a Christ follower? Shift your focus away from your little world and put it on his greater world. Because he said, I will, I will bless you greatly. Greatly. Is that how you would describe your life? An abundance? multiplied immensely because you're moving into the best that God has for your life or have you settled for the least, the less than what God has for your life? I guarantee you, you're miserable as all get out if you have. You're, you're, you're angry, you're hostile, you're, you're bitter, you're what's the use, you're in a routine, you're in a, a normal in your life that you're just living it day to day and, and there's no expectancy there. I'm, isn't it miserable? When God is saying that in Christ there's so much more, 
And many of us have settled, I'm saved. And that's it. Is that it? Is salvation it? Is that the final thing? Or is salvation the beginning of this great thing that God wants to do in and through your life? For we, like Abraham, I'm convinced, have received the the pneumate, the breath, the spirit of Christ in our lives. The moment we put our faith and trust in Jesus, he breathed life into our dead bodies. And through faith, we begin a journey of much, much more than we could ever dreamed, ever hoped, or ever imagined. Why have we settled? Why have you settled for mediocrity? Are you ready for the supernatural activity of God to invade your life? Let's pray.